so anyway, so all right. That's what it's like when you get in your 50s. The check engine light comes on. So, so it's a series we're starting uh, today and doing three weeks of. It's called Grow. The subtitle is I Once Was Stuck. And so what I want to talk about is how to launch your faith, how to get real about it, how to, how to live it. It should be practical. It should be strong. It should work on Mondays just like it does Sundays. Not a good, I'm not a fan of church that only works on Sunday morning. I think that's kind of a drag. And so I, um, that, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about discipleship. And so it is no accident that Brother Jannon talked to you a bit about small groups and how that being a part of a church is so much more than just coming. Now, it's a good place to start, but there's a lot of good places to start. You could start by reading the Bible. You could start by having a friend and uh, having discussions. You could start in a small group or a, a small pack where you discuss spiritual things. You could start by coming to church and listening to me uh, rant and rave for an hour and a half, 45 minutes, uh, some, whatever it's going to be today. So we never know. There's just ways to start. So we're going to talk about the next three weeks what discipleship looks like, how to, to begin growing. Then we're going to have a vision Sunday where we're looking at what we're doing for the rest of the year. And then we're going to talk about how to apply those things in some practical ways with the Holy Spirit and to live those out. So there you go. Now you know what's happening for the next two months. So today we're talking about disciple. Janin referenced a piece of scripture that I want to read to you right now. It's out of Matthew 28. Now, this is what Jesus said to the disciples. This is called the Great Commission. It's one of the most important things that Jesus said. It's kind of like, it's like the, the, the exclamation point on the end of his ministry, really, on earth. And this is what he said. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has been given all authority. Therefore, go, the implied is you. You go. All right? Not the car. You'd have to be old to remember you go, but anyway. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples, not converts, not churchians. What's a church? It's like an urchin. No, I'm just kidding. It's not that at all. I just, it rhymed. Go and make disciples of all the nations. All. Say all. It sounds like a lot of them. It sounds like that pretty much catches most of them. All of them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You make disciples. You baptize them. You, you make disciples of all the nations. Then you teach these disciples to obey all these commands. Obey commands. Teach them to obey commands. The church needs to hear that. It's part of following Jesus, is doing the stuff he says, that I've given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he left. <clears throat> and so, I, I, this is what we call the Great Commission, this is why we exist. This is why we exist. We don't exist to have fun, I love to have fun, that's not why we exist. We don't exist to consume Christianese products. We're not, we're not just trying to do spiritual things that make us feel good. We are here to do what Jesus said, and he said, make disciples who make disciples. Okay? So, now, don't be scared. 
This isn't rocket science. Jesus did not come to earth as a rocket scientist. You're like, they didn't have rockets back then. Well, that's why I picked that time period, all right? It, this isn't rocket science. This is, this is simple, not easy, because rarely is something simple easy, but this is simple. Make disciples who make disciples. And that's what we're talking about today. Jesus' plan is that you follow Jesus. Going to church is part of following Jesus, but that's not following Jesus. We need to make the distinction. Church is, did any of you guys play sports? Did you ever do a huddle? Just give me a nod. Were you ever in a huddle? And it was the coach or someone either chewed you out or he encouraged you. Something or she said something that was like, sick them. Win. That's what church is. Church is like, here's the game plan, sick them, all right? Uh, that's part of what church is. It's a few other things. But that's, that's, going to church is not following Jesus, okay? This is Jesus' plan, okay? It was Jesus' plan. It was the Apostle Paul's plan. And this plan of being a disciple is not a Lone Ranger deal, now, I don't know if you're, I'm kind of, I, I know no, no one ever believes me when I tell them this, but I say it anyway until one day they'll figure it out when they come over and they understand that I'm actually an introvert. I don't, if it's up to me, I would have a little padded room with extra pads and no noise, and I would have a, depri- a sensory deprivation chamber, and I would leave me alone. That would be me. But that's not healthy. People who live like that go crazy which might explain my mental state half the time. So being a disciple is something that has to happen with other people. It has to happen in relationship, hence the small group discussion, hence having church, being together. I I contend, and this is not part of the message, so I'll throw it out there for free, I contend that Christians are to be awesome at relationships because we're the only ones that have tools for proper relationships from Jesus. Okay? And so we do this together. Now, Jesus said something, and, and this, is, this is why this is important. Jesus said, or the Bible says of Jesus, John 2, 24, Jesus didn't trust them. So there you go. You have a Jesus foundation for your trust issues. Okay? <laughs> he didn't trust them so, because he knew all about people. Because, like, he made them, so he figured that out. He knew how they were. And he knew how the fall impacted them. So when you begin to get into the concept of discipleship, you have to understand something, that Jesus knew discipleship had to happen in relationship and it had to be based on trust. So when you see a text like John 2, 4, you knew that Jesus knew that there had to be some trust involved. And that community, that growth, that trust is built through community. And so it's a lot more than just going to church. It's a lot more than religious rhythms and rituals. All those things have value. I'm not trying to, to cast any of that stuff to the curb if those things have value for you. But they don't have value for everyone. And so there are different things that God brings into our life that speak to us based on when he spoke to us and how he spoke to us. So Jesus knew that this happened through trust. Paul knew that. So what I want to jump into today uh, for lack of time, I'm probably going to like jump ahead just a little bit. <clears throat> yeah, here we go, right here. Let's jump to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, he said, Then he said to the crowd, so this was a, a crowd moment. 
He's talking to the big room. So in a small group session, this was a big room session. And he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, do you want to follow me? Do you want to be a disciple? Do you want your life to change? Do you want some new things? If you want this, then you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Jesus wants us to be disciples, and rule number one, disciples follow Jesus. Disciples follow Jesus. Okay, Michael, you're being a little remedial here. No, we don't get this yet, so let's get this. Because that text we just looked at, he says, you must give up your own way, you must take up your cross, and you must give up your life for my sake, and that's how you save it, by letting it go. So what does that mean? What is he telling us? He's talking about denying ourselves. Woohoo! I love self-denial. I mean, it's not just a river in Egypt, they say. What does he mean? Does he mean resisting pizza? Is that what denying yourself is? Does it mean that we live in a constant state of discomfort? Is that what denial means? The Bible gives us an awesome example of denial. So you can wrap your head around what denial means. Peter. This was one of Jesus' number one guys. He was in the top three. He was the loudmouth. He was the one that spoke first and never thought to ask questions later. That guy. He'd been with Jesus for three and a half years. Jesus gets arrested and he's on trial. Peter wants to be, he, he was a wannabe. He wanted to be Jesus' right-hand man. He wanted to be Jesus' go-to answer for what was coming in the future. That's what he wanted, but he wasn't equipped for it yet. So he's out in the courtyard while they are trying Jesus for bla- the crime of blasphemy. He's out in the courtyard, and people start coming by, and he looks familiar because for the last three and a half years, he's been at Jesus' right hand. People, his face looks familiar, so they start hitting him with questions. He has an accent. He was from South Israel, I think. (laughs) And I don't know what he said, but someone said, you sound like you're from Galilee. And he said, I'm not with him. I don't know him. And someone else asked. And he, he followed it up. He drove the spike deeper. I don't, I don't know the guy. I'm not with him. Finally, uh, some other lady finally asked him point blank, I know, I know your face. I saw you on the billboards and the Facebook banner. I think you were with Jesus. And he curses. He starts to curse. And he, he yells, I do not know the man. That is denial, you point it at yourself instead of Jesus, and you have self-denial. What is self-denial? What is denying yourself? It's denying you lordship of your life. What does that mean? It means we are famous for saying things like, hey, I do what I want. I do everything I'm big enough to do, which That's how I started my young adult life. It did not turn out like I thought it would. Turned out I was an idiot, but that's another discussion for another time. There are things I didn't know. So denying self is like, here's Peter, and he's denying Jesus. 
He's denying that Jesus is Lord of his life. He's denying that Jesus is the focus of his life. He's denying that Jesus has been the purpose of his last three and a half years. That's what self-denial is. Self-denial is denying me. I am not Lord. I don't know this guy. He should not be in charge. He is not qualified. He did not pass a test. He's not certified. Get, I don't know him. That's self-denial. And that's what Jesus is calling for in our lives. We cannot be our own God and have a God. We have to have a God. There is a Lord, and it's not me. There is a God, and it's not me. That's self-denial. Does that make sense? Now we jump into the second phrase. Deny yourself. I'm not Lord. I don't know the man. This clown should not be in charge. Jesus should be in charge. Then he says to take up your cross. Now we've twisted this phrase into anything that fits for us. We think that a flat tire is carrying my cross for Jesus. We think that having cancer or stubborn children or an honorary spouse is carrying a cross for Jesus. That is not what it means. That's not what he's talking about. What does he mean when he says carry your cross? This phrase that Jesus used happened 2,000 years ago. It was at the height of the Roman oppression of the nation of Israel. During that time period, 30,000 Jewish men, the estimates are that about 30,000 Jewish men were condemned and crucified publicly. This was a maneuver of Rome to keep the the Israeli people in submission. This had nothing to do with justice. This had everything to do with oppression. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, there was no one in that crowd who had not seen someone carrying a crossbeam on their back on the way to a cross to be nailed to it. Everyone had known someone, was probably related to someone who had died by crucifixion. Everyone knew what he was talking about. To understand what he meant by take up your cross and follow me, understand what it means for a Jewish man who had been condemned to die to take up his cross. Understand what it's like for someone on death row to live out the rest of their time. When you are taking your cross to the place that you're going to be publicly crucified, you don't have plans for the afternoon. You you don't have an agenda. You're not trying to climb a corporate ladder somewhere. You're not trying to get people in your family to like you or love you. You're not trying to make new friends. You're not trying to become an influencer or gain fame. You are going to die. Your life on this earth is over. You have no hopes. You have no dreams. You have no ambitions. You have only to get to your cross. That's what it means to take up your cross. It means... That you have no ambitions on this earth of your own. It means you have no dreams on this earth of your own. It means you've abandoned your own hopes and dreams and, and ambitions and you have embraced the ambitions and dreams of Christ because he took your crucifixion that you might have his life. That's what it means to take up your cross. It's heavy. It it means that you are, no, this life is no longer your own. 
I bet some of you have wrestled in the last few years, and it's the mental and emotional and psychological fallout of what we've experienced over the last three years has only just begun, by the way. This isn't over. And I bet, I know, I've seen the reports, I've seen the statistics, people are depressed, they're suicidal, the mental health numbers are off the charts. People are giving up on their own life. This is a great time to give your life to Jesus. It's a great time to take on Jesus' dreams and hopes and ambitions because yours are dead anyway. And I know, I know what you're thinking. I know what I'd be thinking. I'm like, well, man, Michael, we have to have hopes and dreams. Yeah. We have to have something to live for. So have something to live for that's eternal, that lasts past your tombstone. Think of more than just the days you have on this planet. Maybe you think they're 10 years. Maybe you think they're 70 years. But think that no matter how long you get here, it is a blink of an eye compared to how long you will be conscious how long you will exist and think beyond this life. That's what it means to take up your cross. It means to take on the vision, hopes, and dreams and ambitions of Jesus and release your own. Deny yourself. This guy should not be in charge. And take up your cross. This life is not my own. This is the life of Jesus. By the way, he will do better things with your life than you ever hoped you could. He's faithful. Okay? So that's where discipleship begins. And it's not shallow. We do all this for Jesus. This is deep. But that's the beginning. And I don't know if you're there that yet. So let me tell you a little bit about ordinary faith at this point. It, we are totally cool with you figuring things out. With you having... Questions, we're not scared of a question. We're not saying we have all the answers. We're just saying we're not scared. We're not really smart either, so good luck. But <laughs> So you, you got time. Part of this is to work through this stuff and think about Jesus in your life. But know this. Do know this. Every person in this room, regardless of where you are today, you are getting to a yes or a no in your life when it comes to Jesus. Every day you move closer to that point where you either say yes or you say no. And so the pass-fail comes, all right? Just being straight with you. Not trying to convince you or make you do anything. Asking nothing from you at the moment. Just want you to know what's, what is a process that has to be worked through. Now, we are disciples. By the way, a quote by Jim Elliott that I love that I'd like to share with you. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Jim Elliott gave his life uh, for missions for a group of Indians, and then they killed him, and then his wife took up the mission and reached them. And you can learn that story uh, in an extra credit class later. <laughs> disciples follow Jesus with other disciples. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. Christians, the idea that Christians can just exist 
and be Christians and not be part of some kind of faith fellowship is foreign to the Bible. A lot of folks say, you can be saved and not go to church. Sure, that's possible. Um, but I'm sorry, I was, trying to, I was looking for a joke there and I decided not to throw it out. So you're welcome. You missed one dad joke today. But uh, know that how Jesus intended for us to work is together. So Jesus said this, Matthew 9, 50, salt's good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how will you make it salty again? You must have the quality of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. So there's this each other thing. There's a lot of love one another's. Forgive one another. There's a lot of teaching in the scripture about how to get along with each other. Now, that's Jesus' way. The, the way of the wor Western world is, anytime it gets uncomfortable, cut out. Get out of there. And that's how most people approach, approach church. The second it gets weird or I don't feel appreciated or it's not what I think, I'm gone. And so Jesus said, no, you, you have to learn to be together. You, you have to learn to love each other, maybe even eventually like each other. So what does that mean? I hate this word. One, I have a hard time saying it. My southern tongue just cannot get all those consonants out together. Vulnerable. Being vulnerability. You see, all of us need, need to be known. We need to be known. Not just known, but known and valued. But not only do we need to be known, we also need to know. Like, it would be a one-sided relationship if everyone just knew you and you didn't know them. That actually wouldn't be a relationship. That would be something wrong and, and bizarre. And so we need to know and be known. We need to understand each other. We, we need to come to this place where we can do that. Vulnerability. So I think God puts people in our lives that drive us crazy. Do you have anyone in your life that drives you crazy? Just look at me. I'm... I'm all right, okay. I just, just seeing if I was alone or not. <laughs> Husbands and wives are looking at each other. It's me, isn't it? It's me. <laughs> it is you. Anyway, so um, God, God, have you ever noticed how God puts people in a family that you would never be friends with? Right? Like, how many of you would have picked your siblings as best friends? I know some of you would because you work through stuff or what have you. But, I mean, most of you are like, oh, no, my, my, my little sister, my big brother drives me insane. And so, why? Why does God allow this to happen? Well, it's a sinful world. It's a fallen world. Yes, it is. But God uses even things that are wrong and fallen to accomplish amazing, wonderful things. And so... When our son uh, came in, who was up, I was playing guitar, and there was this young man next to me uh, playing the drum. I'm not sure what he was doing. I don't look. He scares me. And so uh, <laughs> he's over there. So when, when he was born, it was, a, it was a, what do you call that time? It was, it was chaotic. It was, a t it was raw. That's what it was. It was raw. Because we were not expecting uh, to have a child with a special set of circumstances. And I remember listening to a guy named Norm Wakefield, who has, uh, I have no idea how old she is now, but at the time he had an adult daughter with Down syndrome, and he had a message that I had discovered somewhere. I really enjoy Norm Wakefield's teaching. 
And he had a message about what her life in their life had done. And, and, and I want to share this with you because this is important. You see, there are people that God has brought, that are in this world, that God, that God has here, that the world looks at and says, what can they do? In fact, what the world says is, well, God made a mistake. God doesn't care or he wouldn't have allowed this person to have these challenges. And I think that's a horrible thing to say because this is what I learned from Brother Wakefield and what I've learned from my own experience. We need people in our lives who draw things out of us. We tend to walk through life and we look at people for what they can do for us. You can look spiritual right now, but you know this is true. You know it's true. Well, what, what can you do for me? How can you help me out? Can you make me feel good about myself? Can you help me advance my career? Can you, are you a potential life partner? We, we look at everyone for their usefulness. The whole world does. What is your, and your value is based on how useful the world perceives you to be. And that's horse pucky. I didn't know how else to say that in church, so I just, you know, that's what I came out with, horse pucky. God doesn't put everyone in our life for what they can pour into us. He puts a lot of people in our life for what we can pour into them, for what can be drawn out of us. Because I'm telling you, there are some people with special needs and some things in our life that we can see no value for, but they pull so much unconditional love from us. And I think the world needs more unconditional love, not more excuses not to love unconditionally. Our love has hooks in it. We we love people for something back. And and God puts people in our lives, whether it's through someone's special needs, whether it's someone who's just plain old grumpy or mean, God puts people in our lives to straighten out that hook so we can love without having to have something back. Does that make sense? We need each other. We have to be vulnerable and real with each other. And not all of us are awesome. In fact, all of us have some some challenges. So vulnerability is why we need each other. Another reason we need each other is truth. Truth. And that's... I've been in church a long time, so I have to be careful. I want to communicate in ways that make sense to you, not just to me. (laughs) And, And what I'm fond of saying is, Love and truth are two sides of the same coin. You can't have truth without love and it still be truth, and you can't have love without truth and it still be love. And so we need the truth. But here's the thing. I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you, but I'm trying to be nice. We have blind spots. We have weaknesses. We have, we have things that people can see that we can't. And you see, the Word of God, which comes from the Bible, I think the Bible's critically important, but I I also believe that if the Holy Spirit doesn't speak it, you are going to wildly misinterpret it and twist it. And so the Word of God, which comes from knowing the Bible, but also has to be heard in a sense. And I'm not talking about just read out loud, which is helpful. I'm talking about hearing what God says. So truth is about the Word of God speaking into our lives and us hearing it and then doing something about it. And we need each other for that. 
We need a community because I can read the Bible and I have lenses. I have a past. I have assumptions. I can read the Bible and I'm going to interpret it based in my own little echo chamber, the voices that are in my head, the insults and the wounds that I've taken. I'm going to interpret that scripture in a way that is unique to me. And I need someone else in my life who can say, oh, hang on a minute. There's another way to consider that. There's another way to think about that. I need, uh, what I also need is someone praying for me that my mind can be open to the revelation of God, the revelation of God's truth. See, you can read the Bible all day long, and you should read it a lot. But for it to take any formation in your life, it has to be revealed to you. And that's one of the Holy Spirit's job is to teach you what the Bible says. And so we need vulnerability and we need truth and we need to obey it. This is so important. You see, Bible studies are fine. They're even good. But if you study the Bible for decades, you never actually do what it says you're going to be stuck. That's how you end up stuck in your faith. Because your Christian life is like Jesus walking on a raging sea and you scared to death in a little dinghy. I just wanted to say dinghy. (laughs) And there's Jesus and he's frolicking on the waves having a great time. I know you're like, I don't think Jesus frolicked. I think he did. He's on the waves having a great time, and he's saying to you, hey, come on, join me. That's what obedience is about. It's Jesus saying, here's the truth. Here's how things really are in the kingdom of God. There's a higher kingdom at play in a kingdom you can't see that influences the kingdom you can see. And so if you do what I tell you, if you step out of the dinghy onto a raging sea, you might just discover that you can walk on water. That's the life of faith. That's what faith is about. It's trusting Jesus over what you see over what you feel, over what you can logically figure out. Because I know you're smart, but you're not as smart as Jesus. He's like better than Google. And so we need vulnerability and we need truth and we need help, not just hearing what Jesus said, but doing what Jesus told us to do. Until obedience becomes a part of your faith, you will be stuck. No insult in that, that's just the facts. Until you do what Jesus said, you will be stuck. And you need people around you to help you do that. So disciples follow Jesus. Disciples follow Jesus with other disciples. And disciples make more disciples. This is not as hard as it sounds. This is not rocket science. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. We have to get to this idea of making disciples in our lives. We have to get to the go. And it's not hard. In fact, the disciples of Jesus were making disciples of Jesus before they were disciples of Jesus. They were. They had no information no idea what they were doing. All they knew was, I think I found the answer. 
I, I met this guy named Jesus. He is like nothing I've ever seen before. I, he's the answer. I mean, and, and so they would go find a brother or a cousin or a friend, and they would say, hey, man, I found the answer. Come on. And they would, and you know what? That's how you make a disciple. It's just a process of inviting someone along with your journey. That could be inviting into a, a Bible study, into reading some scriptures and trying to do what it says. It could be inviting someone to a small group or to church or, or, or anything. It's just you're on a journey. All disciple making is is saying, hey, I'm on a journey. You want to come? It's not about convincing people. This isn't apologetics. It's just an invitation. Here's why. Most people won't come. The people who don't come are not, not your problem. It's, it's not you. It's not your personality. I mean, maybe your personality has tweaks it needs, but it's not you. Being a disciple maker is just inviting someone to come along, and sometimes they will. That's it. It's not hard. It's not. Once we figure this out, we will release the church from the bondage of its pastors. What? What? You know, I love what I get to do. Steve tolerates what I ask him to do. No, I'm just kidding. He, he, he loves what he does too. I'm just picking on Steve. We can't win the world to Christ. Steve and I can only make so many disciples ourselves. In fact, it's even harder for us because people assume they know what we're thinking and what we're going to say from the get-go. I don't even tell people I'm a pastor. Are you ashamed of it? No, as soon as I say what I do, they have a preconceived image of what I'm all about. And they're wrong. <laughs> Boy, I said that really dogmatically, didn't I? <laughs> what God has given to you needs to be shared. It's not hard. You see, disciples follow Jesus. They follow Jesus with others. And they invite other people along. This isn't hard. In fact, it's super easy. The hard part is the application, not the concept. And the application is adding things to your life and taking away things that slow you down. You know what? I should say one more thing before I, I get too far. I know. I've, I've, I'm reading a book right now by John Eldridge. He wrote a book called Resilience. It just came out this year, last year. And his first chapter is worth the book. It's amazing. And he talks about how over the last three years that we should note, when we walked into the spring of 2020, no one was coming off a sabbatical that year. No one had just come off of three or six months of rest before they went through the chaos that was COVID and all of the things that that produced. We were exhausted when this started. And then, then we begin to lose friends. Then we begin to lose freedoms. Then we begin to lose our minds. We lost our vacations. We lost our jobs. Our kids lost the form of education that we expected them to have. Our, our college students lost the, sh the, the shape of education that they expected. 
There was so much to grieve. And so we did that for however long, several months, two years. And then all the stuff started coming back. And we thought, oh, cool, we can have fun again. So that was 2023, the year of trying to recover what we'd lost the previous two years. And we thought, I'm okay now. If you had just walked out of an abusive relationship and you were free a week ago from that relationship, no one would expect you to be okay within two weeks. If you lost someone you loved and you're grieving, no one should expect you to be okay within two or three months. What we went through is not over. And here's how you know. How much of your life right now is, is just surviving? How many right now are walking through things and something comes up, the kids need something, the work asks for something else, and you think to yourself just, oh my gosh, I cannot do one more thing. You're exhausted to the depths of your soul. This, there is a spirit, there's a supernatural principle at place around the world right now called the spirit of desolation that is just destroying not just our world, but our souls. And that's where you are. And so here, I'm here talking to you today about being a disciple, about crucifying yourself, denying yourself and following Jesus. And I know what your soul's saying, and it'll percolate up to your brain later today. You'll go, it's just one more thing. I can't add anything else to the calendar. I don't have the energy. I don't have the emotional ability. I get it, because I am you. We are the same. But there are things that you do that give you life. And there are things that you do that drain your life. Following Jesus gives you life. It doesn't just give you life, it gives you eternal life. Jesus said, if a man believes in me, out of his belly, out of his liver, I guess we learned from, Dr., from Brother Patrick Klein last week, out of his belly flows rivers of living water. Being a disciple is life. The world has lots of distractions, and I enjoy some of those myself. I, I like movies, action ones with high body counts. I know you're thinking, that's not very spiritual. I know, but it's one of those things I enjoy. <laughs> but they don't give me life. They distract me from the fact that I'm hurting, or that I'm tired, or that I'm exhausted. Jesus gives me life. That's what being a disciple is about. It's about pursuing eternal life. And I know you don't have the energy for it. I know. Because there is a spirit of desolation speaking into your mind right now like you don't have time. You can't do one more thing. Your schedule is too full. There's too much work to be done. The kids need too much. There's no way you can do one more thing. So maybe subtract something that's not giving you life so that you can add something that will give you life. You see, Peter, James, John, the fishermen dudes that started out following Jesus, that's the Greek, fishermen dudes, <laughs> that started following Jesus. 
they left their boats on the shore. They left their careers in the dust. I'm not asking to leave your career in the dust. I'm asking to leave something in the dust so you have time for something that gives you life. That's what it means to be a disciple. Does that make sense? One last thing, and then I'll be done. And I know you're, you're doubting me right now, and I understand. One day Jesus called together his 12 disciples, and he gave them power. That's really all that you need to hear, but I'm going to read the rest of it just because it's so cool. But he, those disciples that came to Jesus, he gave them power. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know what your view is on what Jesus gave the disciples as I read them, but I know this. I think we live in a world today, a Western world, that needs the power of Jesus. I think we live without it way too often. So he gave them power and authority. And here's where it gets weird, but hang on. Jesus did this, by the way, this isn't me. To cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Then he said to them, I don't know if you guys have seen the new Chosen series, but they capture this really well. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. Just make a pest of yourself. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you've abandoned those people to their fate. And so they began... And so they began to circulate the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. These 12 guys, later 72 guys, 72 people, they're not that different from you. They're really not. And I know that a lot of times we interpret what God can do in our lives by what God has done in our lives. But what you need to open yourself up to the possibility of is that God might want to do far more with your ordinary life than you anticipate. But it begins with began. They started. They took a step. Peter stepped out of a boat. They all navigated those towns. Oh, how I wish I could have been there when the first one gave it a shot. I wish I could see that. Imagine it. God gave you an imagination. Use it. Imagine what it would have been like for big mouth Peter who was really pretty scared on the inside, as we saw from his denial, to walk up to that person who was crazy with some kind of demon possession or they were lame on the side of the road, and he says, in the name of Jesus, get him walk. <laughs> What'd you say? Mm. I said, how do you say it later? I don't have any money, but what I do have I'll give to you what I do have because I have God living in me. What I do have because I have His Spirit 
on my life. What I do have, well, I've been forgiven, and I didn't deserve it. I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rise up. Isn't that what it always is? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up, and then whatever the last phrase needs to be, it is. That's discipleship. It looks different, maybe, but it's still the same. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you raise up disciples in this house. I'm not asking for decisions. I'm asking for all of us to be obedient, to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus with others, to follow Jesus with others and invite others along to follow Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that in this house, with all these lives that are here today, some of them, many of them for the very first time, I pray, God, that you'd show them that there is so much that is better, that the promises that the world offers, they're really anemic, they're weak compared to what you can do with our lives and in our lives and for our lives. I pray that you set men, women, these young adults free of the bondage of the, the clouded world we live in and begin to see what it, just a faith in Jesus that just removes impossibilities. I pray for disciples in this house, in this city, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.